You're listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. This is Epiphany Tide, the season in which we recognize and celebrate the revelation of God as given in Jesus Christ. In Him, the light that we can only see in part, in glimpses and glimmers, has finally dawned. It dwells among us and shines on us, and the darkness cannot overcome it. The infinite has become the intimate, and to the question, what is God like? We have been given a full and final answer. God is like Jesus, because Jesus is God, our living epiphany. As you've heard, we begin a new series today called Living Epiphany. So the word epiphany simply means a manifestation of the divine, sometimes represented in scripture as a cloud or a fire or perhaps as a dove or an angel. The ultimate epiphany of God, of course, is none other than our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. Now, different parts of the Christian tradition have celebrated epiphany in different ways, Kind of growing up, we didn't celebrate Epiphany at all. Uh, we celebrated the normal Christian holidays like Fourth of July and Mother's Day and Father's Day. And those t- when we did celebrate Easter and Christmas. But th- for those who have celebrated uh, Epiphany, sometimes it marks the baptism of Jesus, as in our third icon uh, that Josh Galetta did for us uh, is the baptism of Jesus. But other times, in other parts of the tradition, it celebrates the coming of the three wise men, or the Magi. Um, particularly in more kind of Latino, Latina context, there is a holiday that's celebrated today. If any of you kind of grew up in Puerto Rico or Mexico, perhaps you grew up celebrating this, and it's called Three Kings Day. So the Three Kings Day is kind of a final day to kind of celebrate the Christmas time, to exchange gifts because the, the wise men came and brought the Holy Family gifts. So that's this day, right? It's the day that, that is celebrated. So in our Living Epiphany series, we're going to focus on a variety of texts from the Christian lectionary that look at Jesus and the way in which he is the living epiphany. Like he is the one who is living Jesus, doesn't, Jesus is not just a historical figure, right? We believe that although Jesus was crucified on a cross, that he was also resurrected out of a tomb and that he is none other than the living epiphany. Now, here's the punch, though. It's not just that Jesus is the living epiphany of God, but also that there's an expectation that we will be disciples of Jesus or followers of Jesus so that we, too, kind of become living epiphanies. We become living epiphanies in the way in which we then model the life of Christ in our families, in our communities. And so our goal over these next several weeks will be both to kind of pay attention to Jesus and who he is and what he says, but then also to kind of have our own lives molded in that very fashion that we might become like Jesus. So today's sermon is titled, Unexpected Friends. Because there were people that were included in the Jesus story that no one would have anticipated. Friends from unlikely places and friends from improbable backgrounds. Now, it can be surprising, although always delightful, 
when we become friends with those who are different than us. I mean, it's easy for us to kind of associate with people who are similar to us. Right? My mom used to say, birds of a feather flock together, although generally that was an admonishment not to hang out with certain people that she didn't like. <laughs> but I'm going to say that getting to know folks who are different than you can be beneficial. Right? It's best that we don't kind of fall into what the psychologists call groupthink, where we only talk to people who think like we think. We only hang out with folks who look like, like we look. Right? There's a value to diversity. And, and what's interesting, too, and hopefully this isn't too much of a stretch, but the call to worship that we read from this morning that we'll talk a, bit, a little bit more in just a minute comes from this last section of Isaiah. It was Isaiah chapter 60. But as Isaiah comes to an end in Isaiah 65 and 66, Isaiah has this vision of what life in the new heaven and new earth will look like. Like, what will it look like when God has finally put all things right? You know, what will it look like when God recreates the heavens and the earth and makes things kind of perfect? And the vision, part of that vision, is about the animal kingdom. It says the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion will eat hay like an ox. So that, that's pretty unusual, right? But it's this idea that there are some odd pairings. It's this idea that there is peace to be made even amongst those things that are different. Maybe even especially amongst those things that were different. So <clears throat> these odd pairings, right, some sometimes in, grammatically called oxymorons, which as we said is a figure of speech where two things that should contradict each other that go together. Um, one of my favorites comes from John Milton's description of hell. It's called darkness visible. Darkness visible. I just think that's a powerful representation of, of what we're talking about here. Back to that Isaiah passage. At the end of Isaiah, there's, it's full of hope. It's full of expectation. I mean, I might even say it's full of light. It's that section of Isaiah where uh, the people have been placed in exile, but the prophet is now speaking, prophesying about what it will be like when the Messiah comes. Like, arise, let the light shine. The light will kind of shine forth, not just on Israel, but through Israel. I mean, this is what I think Jesus was talking about when he was telling his, his fellow um, uh, followers at that time that uh, there to be a light right, on a bush, not, excuse me, a light on a lampstand, not put under a bushel, that there to be a city on a hill, right? Jerusalem is kind of the ultimate city on a hill. It doesn't matter what angle or what direction you're coming from as you're going into Jerusalem, you're going uphill, right? If you're coming from the south, you're going uphill. If you're coming from the north, you're going uphill. If you're coming from the east or the west, you're going uphill to get to Jerusalem. That's why there's a whole collection of psalms called the, I just forgot it, Psalms of Ascent. Thank you. It's nice to have an educated congregation. <laughs> so yeah, this is why we have these Psalms of Ascent, right? Because we're going up to Israel. And in this passage of Isaiah, it speaks of just that. This, the time that we've wanted, the time that we've hoped for is going to come. And when it comes, Jerusalem will be this great light. The nations will come together. 
And so part of the promise to Israel was that they would become a nation, right? And they had been dispersed. They'd been dispersed by the Assyrians. They'd later kind of been destroyed by the Babylonians. And so there was all of this kind of anguish that the people who should be together had been pulled apart. And they'd been dispersed. They were living in the diaspora, kind of here and there, kind of throughout the Middle East. But then these prophecies come and they talk about the return to Israel, right? Next year in Jerusalem. This, this chance that those who had been dispersed would come home. But this hope, what we find in Isaiah chapter 60, is more than just a hope that our lost ones will return. It's actually a hope for the whole world to come. Because it talks about all of the nations, right? The, and interestingly enough, in Greek, the word for nations and the word for Gentiles or others is the same word, right? These other people, these different people will come and they too will worship God like Israel worshiped God. And what's, what's really then keen, and I, I hope I'm not pulling on this metaphor too strongly, but it talks about your sons coming from far away and your, and your daughters kind of coming home. I think this is what, too, what Jesus was talking about in his parable of the prodigal son. It's not just a single story of one lost son who comes home. It's this hope or this, this kind of both anguish and hope that all these people kind of collectively shared that there are these people who had been kind of pushed away, that they would get to come. And I think on a very practical uh, sense that we, you know, when we kind of live our lives and we do our best to kind of hand our faith kind of to those who we love, right, to our children and to our friends and family, faith is not something so easily transmitted, right? We all kind of walk our own path. It's one of those things that you can't just adopt, from, from someone else. Uh, there's the, the old preachers used to say that God has children but no grandchildren, right? So we, we, can't, or we, can't, um, we can't know God based on our parents' faith or based on our grandparents' faith. So, so how do we do that, right? How, how do we pass the faith? How do we share, share the faith? Well, this is a, a perennial kind of hope, right? It's a perennial thing that we want to do. And here, that hope is realized. Here is a prophecy that in the end, the light will shine and others will come. And I think that does mean other nations and other peoples, but it also means our people who have, who have kind of gone away, that they too will come. I mean, that's, that is part of that promise. That, that story in Isaiah ends, we actually didn't read the last verse in the call to worship, it almost seems out of place, except for the fact that, that traditionally Christians have paired this verse with the story of the Magi in Matthew. And, and there it says this. It says, A multitude of camels shall cover you, and young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense, and they shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. I think one of the reasons why this passage, um, maybe may superficially, but in any case, one of the reasons that this passage has often been paired with Matthew 2 is this reference to the camels, to the frankincense, um, and to the uh, gold, right? I guess the myrrh got left out. Um, but this day, Three Kings Day, just curious, how many of you grew up celebrating Three Kings Day? All right, a handful of us. Right, so... 
This day, Three Kings Day, the historical day that we've celebrated this story of the Magi, Matthew's decision to include the story of the Magi really is quite remarkable. Although Matthew 23, uh, which includes Jesus' critique against the Jewish leadership, is often cited as this kind of strong sense of kind of anti-Semitism, I've often heard, on the other hand, that, that Matthew is the most Jewish of the uh, Christian Gospels. Uh, here's some of the reasons. So Matthew will cite more Old Testament passages than any other Gospel, like far, far more. Like part of, it seems that part of Matthew's argument is, is not to those who are unfamiliar with Judaism, but those who are kind of ultra-familiar with Judaism. He's saying to them, hey, look, this is what you hoped for, this is what you longed for, this is what you'd heard prophesied. This is all being fulfilled in Jesus. And then, too, there's the genealogy. So only Matthew and Luke will include the genealogy of Jesus. But this, this is the second reason why sometimes Matthew's gospel is considered more Jewish than the others. Because unlike Luke, which starts with Jesus and works all the way back to Adam and Eve, uh, Matthew will start with Abraham and work down to Jesus. And he says this, this is the genealogy of the son of Jesus Christ, the son of God, the son of Abraham, the son of David. And then he kind of lays it out, right? So to say that he's the son of Abraham is to claim that he is truly Jewish. And to claim that he's the son of David is to say that he's the legitimate king. And so this kind of, to say that he's the Jewish king kind of resonates this sense of Judaism that we have in Matthew's gospel. One, one last example. The other gospels, particularly uh, Mark and Luke, will often say that the, the main topic of Jesus' teachings was the kingdom of God. Like if you had to boil down what was the good news that Jesus was saying, he was saying that the kingdom of God had come, that in him... There was a new way of, of living. In him was the kingdom. However, with Matthew, Matthew often will kind of slightly change that phrase. That Rather than saying kingdom of God, he'll say kingdom of heaven. Now that might not seem like a big difference to you, but to a Jewish reader or hearer of the gospel, that was quite significant. Because to say heaven as opposed to God was a euphemism. It was a kinder, gentler, kind of roundabout way of saying the same thing, right? So we use euphemisms all the time. Uh, we use them if someone has died. We say they passed away, right? That's a euphemism. Um, we use it, uh, uh, used to be anyway, we used to use it some with women. We'd say that they're expecting as opposed to saying they're pregnant. Uh, we teach our children euphemisms, right, when it comes to bodily functions, right? We don't, most of us don't teach our children, you know, not to flatulate, uh, we come up with other words for that, right? And so heaven was a euphemism for God. So, you know, the, the third commandment, not to take the Lord's name in vain, the Jews kind of took that very strictly. In fact, they took it so strictly that sometimes they would not pronounce the name of God. They would just say the name, Hashem. It means, it literally means the name. <laughs> um, or they wouldn't write the name of God. Like when they, got to, when they got to the section where they were going to write the name of God, it was four letters, they would just put four dots, right, representing the four letters. Like they were going way out of their way not to take the Lord's name in vain. And so they would kind of avoid direct reference. So when Matthew is telling this same story that Mark and Luke is telling, 
but he's kind of saying kingdom of heaven instead of kingdom of God. It seems as though he's kind of, I don't know, taking it easy on his, on his Jewish hearers. Having said that, right, having said all of that about how Jewish Matthew's gospel is, there are ways in which that Matthew seems to go way out of his way to make sure that others are included. So he tells that genealogy of Jesus, son of Abraham, son of David, right, emphasizing all these Jewish things. But then he includes in that story people like Ruth. Like, why tell that part of the story? She's not Jewish. Uh, she's, she's not great. She's not a king. I mean, but yet she's part of Jesus' family tree. Like, Matthew could have easily left that part of the story out. But instead, he includes the story of Ruth, the Moabite, right? So you have Ruth and you have her relationship with with Boaz, which seems to be a little sketchy, maybe. But then from Ruth, right, we eventually, uh, in her descendants, in her uh, genealogy and uh, lineage, we get David. So the, kind of the inclusion, and there are other women. There's Bathsheba, there's Tamar, um, and there's another who's, who I'm slipping my mind now. So that's interesting, right, the way in which these others are included. Also in Matthew's Gospel is a story of a Roman centurion who is said to have this kind of exemplar faith. And then last, and not last, but last for the day, uh, the, the focus text, the story of the Magi, these foreigners from a, with a different religion who are the first to come and the first to worship Jesus. So who are the first people to worship Jesus? Is it Jews? No. Is it the priest? No. Is it the prophets? No. The first person to come and worship Jesus are these magi, these Easterners, these foreigners who follow a different religion. Yet they've come and they've realized who Jesus is and they've come and they've worshiped him. Paul will write about this too, this kind of inclusion of the others. This comes from the book of Ephesians. He writes this, This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. You know, you people, which is us, of course. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote above in a few words, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. So this, this is part of the text for the day. But in it, he references that which he just wrote, right? This is the mystery that I was just talking about and what I just said to you. So perhaps we should step back and look, what is this mystery of which Paul speaks? Paul writes this. He says, uh, So then, Gentiles, I've, I've backed up a bit. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers of the covenants of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, or in, yeah, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. 
he himself, um, excuse me, uh, that he might create, excuse me, he has abolished the law with his commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one humanity in place of the two, thus making peace and might reconcile the groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access to one spirit in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens. You are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also built together spiritually into the dwelling place for God. What's he talking about? Look, all of these promises, they knew, they, Paul and his, his fellow Jews, they knew that there is one God, they knew that one God had created all that there was. They knew that one God had chosen Abraham and from Abraham would make descendants and out of those descendants he'd make a nation. But perhaps what they didn't know, or at least what they weren't anticipating at the time, was that this God of Israel wasn't just the God of Israel, but the God of the world. And that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob wasn't just going to save Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their family but was going to save and include all the families of the world. And so this is the mystery, Paul says, that he's been given. This is what his contemporaries perhaps had yet to catch on to, that Paul had been called to go out to the others, like the Magi, like those other nations that Isaiah had prophesied about that would come in. Paul says this is what was going on. And that which was going on includes most of us, unless, of course, some of us are Jewish, which I'm not exactly sure of everybody's ethnic background. But if, you're, if you are Jewish, then you are part of the original group of people. And if you're not Jewish, then now you're part of the new group of people. Because this is what Paul's saying. He says that out of these two groups, God is making one group. That which would normally have been kept apart because of difference. God is bringing together. This, uh, let me read just a little more here. Um, this goes back to, to chapter 3 uh, where our focus text was. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, sharers in this promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of this gospel, I have become a servant according to the gift of God's grace that was given to me by the working of his power. Although I am at the very least of all saints, this grace was given to me to bring to the Gentiles the news of the boundless riches of Christ and to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things." so that through the church the wisdom of God and its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose that he has carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. Now, I don't know if that sounds like great news to you 
Well, I don't, I don't know if that kind of sounds a little benign, but look, we were the strangers. When we read this passage of Scripture, we were the ones who were far off. We were the ones who had been excluded, but now, because of Christ, are brought near. The most unexpected friends in the biblical story are Jews and Gentiles. More, more perhaps in our culture than an Alabama fan and an Auburn fan. More than a Cowboy fan and a Redskin fan. More than a Republican and a Democrat. More than someone who's uh, black or white. More than someone who's from this nation or another nation. This was kind of a deep-seated division. And God brought those things together. So, while all of this, I think, sounds wonderful, and I think it sounds sweet, the practicality of living in unity with those who are different than us is quite another matter. So it's easy when we talk about it, I think, in this idea of Jew and Gentile, because that sounds so foreign to us. It's not like I walk around thinking, oh, there's a Gentile. Oh, well, there's a Jew. Right? It's not the division that, or the, the animosity or the struggle that's kind of near to us. So we can pick our poison, whether it's race or gender or nationality or political affiliation. It's just not easy to coexist. The church has struggled over the centuries. I mean, I think race is a good example. Martin Luther King Jr. said that 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning is the most segregated time of the week. When you, when you hear of racially charged uh, instances in the news or in society. You can form your own opinion of the circumstances, but if you don't have any friends of a different race, then how would you ever know that your opinion wasn't blinded by implicit bias? I mean, at the very least, you should seek out someone of a different race and find out what their opinion is on the matter. You, you, just, you just can't hear something and then just assume you know the answer particularly if everybody you know kind of looks like you. you. We have to kind of get to know others if we're going to actually practice, I think, this Christian faith. It's hard, I think, to find a racially diverse congregation. I think it's equally hard to find an economically diverse congregation. And yet, today's psalm, Psalm 72, speaks directly to the reality that the godly king will provide justice for the poor and the powerless. As Shane Claiborne um, has said so poetically, how can we worship a homeless man on Sunday and ignore one on Monday? Now, we can, we can, we can say what we want about having a heart for the poor or the needy. But can you name someone who's poor or needy? I mean, if you can't, if you can't give a name of someone you know in any category that you say God calls us to care for, then to what extent are we actually living this? Again, it can sound sweet and uplifting, but it's difficult and I think this is, this is why Paul and Peter and Jesus before them, right, would run into trouble with folks. Because what they were asking of us was not easy. This is why I'd, I'd like to see us as a church come together 
with a more collective and concerted effort to support Blessings and Hope Food Pantry. It's, uh, it's a ministry that's owned and operated uh, by Alan Fredo and Bev Lamp, right? Members of our community, of our congregation. It's local in the sense that it's like I can almost throw a rock and hit it. That's an exaggeration, right? Because for two reasons. One, I can't throw very far. And, and two, it's over here on Edgewood, right? But if you realize there are people who live in Lakeland who suffer from food insecurity. Like, they don't know necessarily whether or not they'll have enough to eat. And if, if you think that love is essential to being Christian, and if you think that God is calling us to come together in our differences to have these kind of unexpected friends, then there's got to be a way that we can be active in these things. So whether it's with your life group or whether it's with your family or whether you gather with our church, I'd like to see us collectively come together as Oasis Community Church and support this local ministry. Uh, I have one more for us. Uh, Not only... Would uh, should we value and seek to inhabit racially and economically diverse friendships and communities, we should, I believe, as a people and as a church, also be politically diverse. This is especially hard in our times. And a politically diverse church may be the rarest of all species. But I think we can do it, right? I think if we put Jesus at the center, we might find that in our friendships, we can be friends with people who have different political views than we do. We can be friends with people who are of a different race than we are. We can be friends with people who are in a different kind of economic status than we are. These are lofty goals, which I hope we can agree are desirable. Amen? That that was looking soft. These are lofty goals, right? But I believe they're desirable. Amen? There you go. But this, again, is more easily said than done. So, so how might we go about doing it? Um, there's this beautiful sermon that John Wesley preached called The Catholic Spirit that talks about uh, how do people who are very different ever get along, particularly when it comes to worshiping God. He focuses in on this one passage in 2 Kings, and I'll paraphrase it. One, one character is asking another, if your heart is true to mine as my heart is to yours... And the second one says, well, it is. And then the first one says, if it is, give me your hand. Like, let's let's walk together. So Wesley begins his sermon by appealing to the great commandment, right? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. So three short things here. One, we all have opinions, right? I have my opinions. You have your opinions. And if we're talking about anything that matters, chances are uh, we're going to disagree. Look, I often disagree with myself on on things. As Walt Whitman said, I am broad and full of contradictions, right? So we all have opinions, and we want other people to respect our opinions. Yeah? Okay. So if we want other people to respect our opinions, then we should be able to also respect the opinions of others, especially those that are different from us. Two, when he says, give me your hand, it doesn't mean that I have to adopt all of your opinions and you have to adopt all of mine. Yeah? 
like we're not, we're not necessarily looking for us to have um, uniformity in our community. We're looking for unity in our community, right? And there's a difference. Often what happens is we flock together, right, with lightness. And we imagine, because we're uniform, that we have unity. But if we don't have any difference, how do we ever know we're really uh, experiencing unity and not just experiencing uniformity? Yeah? His third point, um, which uh, Wesley makes very strongly here, is that this doesn't mean that all opinions are equal. This doesn't mean that there is no standard, right? There are some things that we do hold essential. God, Jesus, the Spirit, right? Uh, God's love for us, redemption through the cross and resurrection. These, these are, aren't kind of negotiables. These, these are the central things. How you treat others really matters, right? Whether or not you turn the, uh, the other cheek or go the second mile, or give them your coat when they sue you for your shirt. Right? The judge, not lest you be judged. This, these, are, these are central things. And we don't, we don't think that all of those, all opinions are equal. But we do kind of hold with grace these various things. In closing, I think there are some, some real benefits to having unexpected friends. There are some real benefits to having friendships with people who are different than you, and seeking those out and cultivating those. And so uh, Janet Thompson, in her book, Mentoring for All Seasons, lists several things, uh, advantages uh, for uh, unexpected friendship. So let's just kind of run down a list of these. One of the advantages of having unexpected friends is experiencing things outside of your comfort zone. We can get into the rut where all of our friends are alike and do the same things, and we never try anything new. It's comfortable staying with the known, but it's challenging and fun to expand into the unknown with a friend. You might go to a restaurant you wouldn't have otherwise gone to, or hear an opinion you wouldn't have otherwise heard, or see a movie, or listen to a song, or, or go to a location that you just wouldn't have gone to had you not had this new friendship. Next, Learning to see people beyond how they're different from you. Man, I think this is key. Look, the value in someone is not just in their, their difference from you. The value in them is in them, right? They bear the image of God. They, they, are, they are loved by Christ. Jesus died for them, right? There is value in the other. And indifference, not just because of the difference, but because of who they are. Thirdly, applying the true meaning of love your neighbor. We know that Jesus sees everyone the same and died for all people to have opportunity for salvation. But sometimes we Christians don't look at people with that openness when making friends. Like it's easy enough to say, yes, God loves them too. But... I don't have to eat lunch with them, do I? Yeah, God loves them too, but do you know who they voted for? Next, uh, sharing ideas, perspectives, and conversations you might not have ever experienced before. Expanding our horizons to have honest debate and consider someone else's perspective 
is almost a lost art today. I've heard politicians say that they have friends in the other party and can have heated debates in chambers, but they enjoy their unlikely friendship outside of chambers. We need to get back to those kind of friendships in our social media and personally. And lastly, being kind, loyal, and loving to someone not because of any ulterior motive to change them, but because you like them. There's always the temptation to try and change an unlikely friend to be more like you, think like you, act like you, believe like you. Just not be so unlikely, I guess. When, when you do that, you lose the blessing of loving them just how they are. Maybe God will change them in places that God wants. Maybe God will change you or me. Maybe that's why God put us together. Let's let God do that. And let's let us be loyal friends. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes. And if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.